Section 8 of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. The Utility of Religion, Part 4. Much more might be added on this topic, but enough has been said to convince anyone who can distinguish between the intrinsic capacities of human nature and the forms in which those capacities happen to have been historically developed that the sense of unity with mankind and a deep feeling for the general good may be cultivated into a sentiment and a principle capable of fulfilling every important function of religion in itself justly entitled to the name i will now further maintain that it is not only capable of fulfilling these functions but would fulfill them better than any form whatever of supernaturalism it is not only entitled to be called a religion it is a better religion than any of those which are ordinarily called by that title for in the first place it is disinterested it carries the thoughts and feelings out of self and fixes them on an unselfish object loved and pursued as an end for its own sake the religions which deal in promises and threats regarding a future life do exactly the contrary they fasten down the thoughts to the person's own posthumous interests they tempt him to regard the performance of his duties to others mainly as a means to his own personal salvation and are one of the most serious obstacles to the great purpose of moral culture the strengthening of the unselfish and weakening of the selfish element in our nature since they hold out to the imagination selfish good and evil of such tremendous magnitude that it is difficult for any one who fully believes in their reality to have feeling or interest to spare for any other distant and ideal object it is true many of the most unselfish of mankind have been believers in supernaturalism because their minds have not dwelt on the threats and promises of their religion but chiefly on the idea of a being to whom they looked up with a confiding love and in whose hands they willingly left all that related especially to themselves but in its effect on common minds what now goes by the name of religion operates mainly through the feelings of self-interest even the christ of the gospels holds out the direct promise of reward from heaven as a primary inducement to the noble and beautiful beneficence towards our fellow-creatures which he so impressively conculcates this is a radical inferiority of the best supernatural religions compared with the religion of humanity since the greatest thing which moral influences can do for the amelioration of human nature is to cultivate the unselfish feelings in the only mode in which any active principle in human nature can be effectively cultivated namely by habitual exercise but the habit of expecting to be rewarded in another life for our conduct in this makes even virtue itself no longer an exercise of the unselfish feelings secondly it is an immense abatement from the worth of the old religions as means of elevating and improving human character that it is nearly if not quite impossible for them to produce their best moral effects unless we suppose a certain torpidity if not positive twist in the intellectual faculties for it is impossible that any one who habitually thinks and who is unable to blunt his inquiring intellect by sophistry should be able without misgiving to go on ascribing absolute perfection to the author and ruler of so clumsily made and capriciously governed a creation as this planet and the life of its inhabitants the adoration of such a being cannot be with the whole heart unless the heart is first considerably sophisticated the worship must either be greatly overclouded by doubt and occasionally quite darkened by it or the moral sentiments must sink to the low level of the ordinances of nature the worshipper must learn to think blind partiality atrocious cruelty and in reckless injustice not blemishes in an object of worship since all these abound to excess in the commonest phenomenon of nature it is true the god who is worshipped is not generally speaking the god of nature only but also the god of some revelation 
and the character of the revelation will greatly modify and it may be improve the moral influences of the religion this is emphatically true of christianity since the author of the sermons on the mount is assuredly a far more benignant being than the author of nature but unfortunately the believer in the christian revelation is obliged to believe that the same being is the author of both this unless he resolutely averts his mind from the subject or practices the act of quieting his conscience by sophistry involves him in moral perplexities without end since the ways of his deity and nature are on many occasions totally at variance with the precepts as he believes of the same deity in the gospel he who comes out with least moral damage from this embarrassment is probably the one who never attempts to reconcile the two standards with one another but confesses to himself that the purposes of providence are mysterious and that its ways are not our ways that its justice and goodness are not the justice and goodness which we can conceive and which it befits us to practice when however this is the feeling of the believer the worship of the deity ceases to be an adoration of abstract moral perfection it becomes the bowing down to a gigantic image of something not fit for us to imitate it is the worship of power only i say nothing of the moral difficulties and perversions involved in revelation itself though even in the christianity of the gospels at least in its ordinary interpretation there are some of so flagrant a character as almost to outweigh all the beauty and benignity and moral greatness which so eminently distinguish the sayings and character of christ the recognition for example of the object of highest worship in a being who could make a hell and who could create countless generations of human beings with the certain foreknowledge that he was creating them for this fate is there any moral enormity which might not be justified by imitation of such a deity and is it possible to adore such a one without a frightful distortion of the standard of right and wrong any other of the outrages to the most ordinary justice and humanity involved in the common christian conception of the moral character of god sinks into insignificance besides this dreadful idealization of wickedness most of them too are not so unequivocally deducible from the very words of christ as to be indisputably a part of christian doctrine it may be doubted for instance whether christianity is really responsible for atonement and redemption original sin and vicarious punishment and the same may be said respecting the doctrine which makes belief in the divine mission of christ a necessary condition of salvation it is nowhere represented that christ himself made this statement except in the huddled-up account of the resurrection contained in the concluding verses of st mark which some critics i believe the best consider to be an interpolation again the proposition that the powers that be are ordained of god and the whole series of corollaries deduced from it in the epistles belong to st paul and must stand or fall with paulism not with christianity but there is one moral contradiction inseparable from every form of christianity which no ingenuity can resolve and no sophistry explain away it is that so precious a gift bestowed on a few should have been withheld from the many that countless millions of human beings should have been allowed to live and die to sin and suffer without the one thing needful the divine remedy for sin and suffering which it would have cost the divine giver as little to have vouchsafed to all as to have bestowed by special grace upon a favored minority add to this that the divine message assuming it to be such has been authenticated by credentials so insufficient that they fail to convince a large proportion of the strongest and most cultivated minds and the tendency to disbelieve them appears to grow with the growth of scientific knowledge and critical discrimination he who can believe these to be the intentional shortcomings of a perfectly good being must impose silence on every prompting of the sense of goodness and justice as received among men it is no doubt possible and there are many instances of it to worship with the intensest devotion either deity that of nature or of the gospel without any perversion of the moral sentiments 
but this must be by fixing the attention exclusively on what is beautiful and beneficent in the precepts and spirit of the gospel and in the dispensations of nature and putting all that is the reverse as entirely aside as if it did not exist accordingly the simple and innocent faith can only as i have said coexist with a torpid and inactive state of the speculative faculties for a person of exercised intellect there is no way of attaining anything equivalent to it save by sophistication and perversion either of the understanding or of the conscience it may almost always be said both of sects and of individuals who derive their morality from religion that the better logicians they are the worst moralists one only form of belief in the supernatural one only theory respecting the origin and government of the universe stands wholly clear both of intellectual contradiction and of moral obliquity it is that which resigning irrevocably the idea of an omnipotent creator regards nature and life not as the expression throughout of the moral character and purpose of the deity but as the product of a struggle between contriving goodness and an intractable material as was believed by plato or a principle of evil as was the doctrine of the manichaeans a creed like this which i have known to be devoutly held by at least one cultivated and conscientious person of our own day allows it to be believed that all the mass of evil which exists was undesigned by and exists not by the appointment of but in spite of the being whom we are called upon to worship a virtuous human being assumes in this theory the exalted character of a fellow laborer with the highest a fellow combatant in the great strife contributing his low which by the aggregation of many like himself becomes much towards that progressive ascendancy and ultimately complete triumph of good over evil which history points to and which this doctrine teaches us to regard as planned by the being to whom we are all the benevolent contrivance we behold in nature against the moral tendency of this creed no possible objection can lie it can produce on whoever can succeed in believing it no other than an ennobling effect the evidence for it indeed if evidence it can be called is too shadowy and insubstantial and the promises it holds out too distant and uncertain to admit of it being a permanent substitute for the religion of humanity but the two may be held in conjunction and he to whom ideal good and the progress of the world towards it are already a religion even though that other creed may seem to him a belief not grounded on evidence is at liberty to indulge the pleasing and encouraging thought that its truth is possible apart from all dogmatic belief there is for those who need it an ample domain in the region of the imagination which may be planted with possibilities with hypotheses which cannot be known to be false and when there is anything in the appearances of nature to favor them as in this case there is for whatever force we attach to the analogies of nature with the effects of human contrivance there is no disputing the remark of paley that which is good in nature exhibits those analogies much oftener than what is evil the contemplation of these possibilities is a legitimate indulgence capable of bearing its part with other influences in feeding and animating the tendency of the feelings and impulses towards good one advantage such as it is the supernatural religions must always possess over the religion of humanity the prospect they hold out to the individual of a life after death for though the scepticism of the understanding does not necessarily exclude the theism of the imagination and feelings and this again gives opportunity for a hope that the power which has done so much for us may be able and willing to do this also such vague possibility must ever stop far short of a conviction it remains then to estimate the value of this element the prospect of a world to come as a constituent of earthly happiness i cannot but think that as the condition of mankind becomes improved as they grow happier in their lives and more capable of deriving happiness from unselfish sources they will care less and less for this flattering expectation 
it is not naturally or generally the happy who are the most anxious either for a prolongation of the present life or for a life hereafter it is those who never have been happy they who have had their happiness can bear to part with existence but it is hard to die without ever having lived when mankind cease to need a future existence as a consolation for the sufferings of the present it will have lost its chief value to them for themselves i am now speaking of the unselfish those who are so wrapped up in self that they are unable to identify their feelings with anything which will survive them or to feel their life prolonged in their younger contemporaries and in all who help to carry on the progressive movement of human affairs require the notion of another selfish life beyond the grave to enable them to keep up any interest in existence since the present life as its termination approaches dwindles into something too insignificant to be worth caring about but if the religion of humanity were assiduously cultivated as the supernatural religions are and there is no difficulty in conceiving that it might be much more so all who had received the customary amount of moral cultivation would up to the hour of death live ideally in the life of those who are to follow them and though doubtless they would often willingly survive as individuals for a much longer period than the present duration of life it appears to me probable that after a length of time different and different persons they would have had enough of existence and would gladly lie down and take their eternal rest meanwhile and without looking so far forward we may remark that those who believe the immortality of the soul generally quit life with fully as much if not more reluctance as those who have had no such expectation the mere cessation of existence is no evil to any one the idea is only formidable through the illusion of imagination which makes one conceive oneself as if one were alive and feeling oneself dead what is odious in death is not death itself but the act of dying and its lugubrious accompaniments all of which must be equally undergone by the believer in immortality nor can i perceive that the skeptic loses by his skepticism any real and valuable consolation except one the hope of reunion with those dear to him who have ended their earthly life before him that loss indeed is neither to be denied nor extenuated in many cases it is beyond the reach of comparison or estimate and will always suffice to keep alive in the more sensitive natures the imaginative hope of futurity which if there is nothing to prove there is as little in our knowledge and experience to contradict history so far as we know it bears out the opinion that mankind can perfectly well do without the belief in a heaven the greeks had anything but a tempting idea of a future state their elysian fields held out very little attraction to their feelings and imagination achilles in the odyssey expressed a very natural and no doubt a very common sentiment when he said that he would rather be on earth the serf of a needy master than reign over the whole kingdom of the dead and the pensive character so striking in the address of the dying emperor hadrian to his soul gives evidence that the popular conception had not undergone much variation during that long interval yet we neither find that the greeks enjoyed life less nor feared death more than other people the buddhist religion counts probably at this day a greater number of votaries than either the christian or the mohammedan the buddhist creed recognizes many modes of punishment in a future life or rather lives by the transmigration of the soul into new bodies of men or animals but the blessing from heaven which it proposes as a reward to be earned by perseverance in the highest order of virtuous life is annihilation the cessation at least of all conscious or separate existence it is impossible to mistake in this religion the work of legislators and moralists endeavoring to supply supernatural motives for the conduct which they were anxious to encourage and they could find nothing more transcendent to hold out as the capital prize to be won by the mightiest efforts of labor and self-denial than what we are so often told is the terrible idea of annihilation 
surely this is a proof that the idea is not really or naturally terrible that not philosophers only but the common order of mankind can easily reconcile themselves to it and even consider it as a good and that it is no unnatural part of the idea of a happy life that life itself be laid down after the best that it can give has been fully enjoyed through a long lapse of time when all its pleasures even those of benevolence are familiar and nothing untasted and unknown is left to stimulate curiosity and keep up the desire of prolonged existence it seems to me not only possible but probable that in a higher and above all a happier condition of human life not annihilation but immortality may be the burdensome idea and that human nature though pleased with the present and by no means impatient to quit it would find comfort and not sadness in the thought that it is not chained through eternity to a conscious existence which it cannot be assured that it will always wish to preserve end of the utility of religion part four